Good morning. I wonder how you're feeling at the end of this week as the pandemic lockdown begins to ease. Relief at greater freedoms, perhaps? Longing for the possibility of seeing friends and family face to face again? Or is it maybe tinged with a hint of uh, fear? How are those freedoms going to be used? Or are they going to be abused? Before we moved to Claygate ten years ago, Janet and I lived in Sheffield, just a few minutes' drive away from the delights of the Peak District. For some years after our retirement, I was helping in a church which is now part of a group of villages, including the lovely village of Eam, famous for its affliction during the Great, great Plague of 1666, when it was in lockdown for 18 months. And since we've lived in Claygate, I've been pondering some of the parallels between Claygate in our pandemic and Eam in its plague. The disease had been brought to the village by a tailor from London in a bale of cloth and quickly began to spread through the village. And of its 700 residents, it eventually killed no less than 260 of them. Translates that to Claygate terms, population 7,000, dead 2,500. For them, lockdown was total. No one was allowed in. No one was allowed out. Not because the government had told them what to do, but the rector had, the 27-year-old new, new incumbent. He told the flock that it was their duty, part of their common humanity, to prevent the plague from quickly spreading to the nearby towns of Bakewell and Sheffield and Manchester and beyond. It called for life-changing sacrifice. And it brought it. One of the first to die was the rector's wife, Catherine. Entire families were wiped out. One woman, Elizabeth Hancock, lost her husband and six children in eight days. And because plague time rules meant families had to bury their own dead, she had to dig the graves herself. But their sacrifice, which the current rector, Mike Gilbert, describes as an act of courage almost beyond comprehension, meant that the disease which had killed 100,000 people in London was contained and didn't spread outside the village. The villagers were prepared to sacrifice their own future in order to prevent unimaginable loss of life across the whole north of England. The key word in the sacrifice, in the story, and the key word in the Christian faith is sacrifice. And they certainly had to give that. Our supreme example of sacrifice is Jesus, who set aside equality with God to become obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Even God the Father knows what it is to lose a son. We probably shall never have to face such extreme situations. But for all of us, there is always going to be a cost in becoming a disciple of Jesus, isn't there? It took the disciples some time to come to terms with this, and Judas never did. Do you remember the excitement of the, of the um, 
disciples at Caesarea Philippi when Peter blurted out, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just think what that means for us, they thought afterwards. Freedom. Freedom from, freedom from the Romans. Freedom to enjoy power and wealth. And just afterwards, even two of Jesus' closest disciples asked him if they could have key posts in his leadership team. This craving for wealth and power has haunted leadership teams right down the centuries, including governments. It still does. So what did Jesus tell his disciples to do instead? He said, if any of you want to become my followers, deny yourselves, take up your cross daily and follow me. Or as the message version has it, anyone who intends to come to me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Jesus promises his disciple a life worth living, a sense of purpose, his continuing presence with us through his spirit, however contented or desperate we may be. The one thing he never promised us was an easy time. But he did promise us that he would always be with us to the end of the age in the sufferings as well as the joys. I will never leave you or forsake you. Ever since the death of Stephen, the first martyr, disciples of Jesus have been prepared to sacrifice their time and energy, life and limb in their worship of, uh, in their commitment to follow Jesus, whatever it takes. Why? Because worship leads to response in our lives. We are overwhelmed by the love of Jesus going to the cross for us. We love because he first loved us. Here in Claygate, we quickly respond to ingratitude to examples of sacrifice. Gratitude inspired by the selfless example of others. Others like the frontline doctors and nurses in the NHS, some of whom had even returned from retirement to give their lives for others. And didn't it seem appropriate on VE Day to celebrate again the sacrifice who similarly gave their lives in the war so that others may live in freedom. Suffering and sacrifice seem always destined to be with us. I've come to realise that God must have known even long before creation that it would be like this. The universal Christian logo is cross-shaped. Why? Because God is love. And love costs. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And we are called to take up our cross daily and follow him as we respond in love and worship. St Paul challenged his Christian friends in Rome to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That, he told them, is your spiritual worship. C.T. Studd was a national hero at the beginning of the 20th century. He'd had every advantage in life, a wealthy home, educated at Eton and Cambridge, and was an outstanding cricketer who played for England in the first Ashes Test match. 
But he sacrificed all that to go as one of the Cambridge Seven to be a missionary in China. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. His example spurs us on. Like the villagers of Eam 350 years ago, we sense that life post-COVID-19 will never be quite the same again. But in Jesus, we have a living hope, who is, which is never changing, a hope in the risen Christ. And you know that although Christians don't know the future, we do know who holds that future. And he holds us in his hand.